My kids have made me a lot of stuff over the years and I've kept some of them in this box in my room. It's kind of fun. My son made this like little kind of pillow with a San Francisco Giants logo on it. Um, someone drew me a dolphin or maybe that's a fish or maybe that's a shark, I'm not sure. Here's like a watercolor thing. Um, and then there's this note. Uh, it says, I love you, dad. You are the love of the world. Um, and, and look at this, isn't this hideous? I mean, look at this thing. First of all, the block lettering is not uniform at all. It has no flow to it. The heart isn't centered. Love is spelled wrong. And there's a huge incorrect theological statement right in the middle of the heart. I am not the love of the world at all. At best, I barely like people. I'm just kidding. I, I actually love it. The fact that my kids took the time to make stuff for me is the best. But what if God treated us this way with our worship? with the things that we said and things that we sang and the things that we did. Do you think God looks down and goes, oh man, that's hideous. I mean, I know you're trying, but yikes. Or does God value our love over our execution and skills and ability to follow the right traditions? This morning we're in our sermon series called Hello, My Name is Jesus. And there's a lot of talk about who Jesus is and what he did and what he taught. And so we want to spend some time listening to what Jesus said about himself. Whether you've been following Jesus for many years or you don't know what to think of Jesus at all right now, let him introduce himself to you in his teachings. Today we're focusing on something Jesus says in Matthew 12. Here Jesus is recorded reminding people that he values love over legalism. Verse 1 starts out like this. At the time, Jesus went through the grain fields on a Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick heads of wheat and eat them. This story comes right after a story we looked at last week, con contrasting the work of Jesus and the theme of rest. Now, as far as we know, Jesus didn't own land, and he wasn't a farmer, so him and his disciples are in someone else's field gleaning some of the food, which, generally speaking, is not illegal. The ensuing dispute we're going to cover uh, appears to be because this happened on the Sabbath. Verse 2, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what's against the law to do on the Sabbath. Well, why is this a big deal? Well, the Ten Commandments, the foundational laws of the Hebrew people, said this was a no-no. Exodus 28 says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreign residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now beyond that rule, others were added later as people had to decide what labor and work meant. As the Old Testament continues to tell the story of God and his people, we get a few examples of how Israelites interpreted this. You couldn't make fire, you couldn't gather firewood, you couldn't carry heavy things, you couldn't trade, you couldn't plow a harvest, walk over a certain distance, or administer any kind of medicine. Those are just some of the examples. And then Jewish history tells us that the discussion of what defines work on the Sabbath was an ongoing one that often people came to disagreements over. But not only do these verses tell us about Jewish law and tradition, it also tells us about some key players in this story. We're going to get to Jesus later on in the story, but for now, let's focus on the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as Michael will tell you next week, were, uh, was close to what we might consider like a political party today. 
Um, they were well known for their legal traditions and were well known legal experts. They were a social movement and had religious power during the time. For all the zeal and desire to be holy and right though, they missed the point quite often. These guys were self-appointed referees and they loved to follow Jesus around and call fouls. I'm reminded of this meter maid that just would not let me park in San Francisco. If you've ever been to San Francisco, you realize the streets are pretty much vertical. And I had a stick shift and I was trying to parallel park down a hill and I was trying not to run in the most expensive BMW I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'm stuck. I don't want to run into this because I have that stick shift. I'm trying to park and this meter maid just comes up and he's blowing his whistle and he keeps saying, park properly, park properly, park properly. And I'm like, I'm trying to park properly. I'm trying to park properly. I can't even say that, park properly. Uh, this is the image that I get of, of, of the Pharisees. They just walk around and tell you what you need to be doing better. And in verse 2 here, they get kind of sassy. They give Jesus this backhanded criticism. And kind of like, look at what your followers are doing. They, they, what they're doing is this really bad thing. I mean, how could you let them do that? Didn't you teach them the proper way to do things? Jeez. So, so interestingly, Jesus kind of matches their energy here, though, in his response. And it's interactions like this that really make me love Jesus. The Pharisees got sassy with him, and he got sassy back. He said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the sacred bread, which was against the law for him and his companions to eat, but only for the priests? Or have you read, or have you not read in the law that the priests and the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are not guilty? What makes this response so sassy, the, the Pharisees did read that. They read everything. And I bet if they were around today, they would have written about everything they read and then read everything about what they wrote about everything that they read. This, this was their vibe. So when Jesus says, haven't you read? I imagine that was a trigger for them. Jesus wasn't playing. He basically says, hello, my name is Jesus. I'm teaching you the rules here today. Now have a seat. Jesus brings up a story recorded in 1 Samuel 21 where David and his companions are allowed to eat sacred bread along, uh, sacred bread set aside only for the priests. So why does Jesus bring this up? Well, one interpretation is that Jesus was making a point to say that taking care of hunger is always okay, even on the Sabbath. Um, but another interpretation is that as just as David had the authority to eat the bread as the coming king, Jesus has the authority to define what work is, uh, what work is okay on the Sabbath. And that's a bold statement. And it's not the only one that he makes. Verse 6, he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. And that's a big deal. The Pharisees loved the temple. It was their source of identity and social and religious power. New Testament scholar R.T. France wrote, it's hard to overestimate the shock value of this pronouncement. The tabernacle set up under God's directions in the wilderness and the fixed temple which was succeeded by it were understood to be the focus of God's relation to his people. The temple was more than a place of worship. It was a symbol of nationhood and the more, and the more so since political power had been assumed by Rome. Its priestly establishment was the nearest thing Israel still possessed to a government of its own. And Jesus said, there's something bigger going on here, guys. Imagine telling the most patriotic person you know that America, that America isn't as important as they think it is. Or imagine telling the most diehard Star Wars fan that Star Trek was better. 
Or imagine telling the most enthusiastic Taylor Swift fan how lucky she is to be dating a famous football player because that's really going to put her on the map now. Jesus makes a bold statement here. I set the rules, not you. Love and mercy take precedence over strict Sabbath observances. Love and mercy don't rest on the Sabbath. Love always over legalism. In verse 7, he says, If you had known what this means, I want mercy and not sacrifice, you would have, con- you would have not condemned the innocent. Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 6 here. He, kindness towards the needs of another, such as the, the hunger of his disciples, will always be what God desires over compliance with the law. And by saying that the disciples were innocent, Jesus is saying the Pharisaic interpretation of the Sabbath law is wrong, which should make even the most Bible knowledge individual today, let alone an everyday Jesus follower, stop and take inventory of our own interpretations of the rules we read in the Bible and how we implement them in our lives. Because the Pharisees weren't necessarily wrong, they were following the rules. But following the rules just to follow the rules is missing the point of loving someone else, which is the bigger rule that we're called to follow, right? Verse 8, For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Another bold statement. This is what's called a Christological statement or Christological statement. Each week in this in the sermon series, we've been looking at them. Uh, a Christological statement is a statement that claims, that makes a claim about who Jesus is. So imagine you're meeting Jesus at a party. He's got his name tag on and, and Jesus says, hello, my name is Jesus. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's claiming authority over biblical laws and he has the right to decide what is the right way to follow the rules. Why? Well, because he kind of made them. He was there when they were made. And in the sense that Jesus and the Father are one with the Holy Spirit, he had a part in making these rules. And if you believe that, then you read this and you're like, oh, of course you are. But this statement sounds like a crazy person if you don't. Imagine you're at, uh, you're at your work or you're in class or something and someone walks in and declares, I am the Lord of the copy room or I am the Lord of the lunchroom. I mean, what are you thinking in that moment? Yet here is maybe the most boldest statement a person can make. I am the Lord of everything. And if you get this reference, Jesus is basically saying, I am him. Pay attention. And then if you're reading this and you're wondering, oh, you are, are you? Then I'd like to see some proof. He gives you some. Verse 9, then Jesus left the place and entered the synagogue. A man was there who had a withered hand, and they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they could accuse him? You get the impression that they know what Jesus is going to say and what Jesus is going to do. And it's interesting, at the time, according to scholars, applying medicine or attempting to heal on the Sabbath was considered work and therefore a no-no. Some workarounds were if medicine was prepared on a day other than the Sabbath, or if it was a life or death situation, then it was permitted. But this situation was not one of them. So when it's recorded that they asked him this so they could accuse him, they were sitting confident in their legal interpretations, and it seems like they were hoping to get evidence against him in a court setting. All the while, there's a man with legitical medical needs being used as a prop for their schemes. And Jesus knows their schemes. He's seen them before. He knows their intent. I love to mess with my kids. And I say mess, you might say lie. My daughter might ask me when we're headed to Disneyland again, and I'll tell her, well, it burned down last night, um, and no one's ever going to Disneyland again. I said something like this to my daughter the other day, and she's like, Dad, stop it. I know your schemes, okay? She wasn't phased. And Jesus isn't phased in this situation he's in now. 
Verse 11, he said to them, would not any of you, if you had one sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. We might look at this and go, of course we would. Who would leave a sheep in a pit for a day just because of the day of the week that they decided to fall into it? But actually, according to Sabbath rules, that was a no-no too. You could maybe throw some food down there, or you could maybe lay some kind of material down and hope that the dumb thing was smart enough to climb out on its own. Newsflash, they aren't. Sheeps are pretty dumb. Um, but nope, you couldn't pull it out or use any kind of instrument to help the thing. Not on the Sabbath anyway. Sorry, sheepy. So this is interesting then, because Jesus uses a situation where the law has been pretty clear, but he seems to ask it in a sense of like, of course you would do that. Even, even you would do that. Bible commentators Davies and Allison write, the form of this question suggests that Jesus is not appealing to rule, but to the actual practice of his hearers. The question is addressed to men as men. An ordinary, an or, and ordinary humanity is expected to supply the answer. In other words, common sense is making the rule here, not traditional practices. Of course, we're going to help the sheep. It's the good thing to do. Then Jesus says, if you're going to do it for the dumb sheep, then why would you not do that for a person? Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hands. He stretched it out and it was restored as healthy as the other. That's pretty cool. So Jesus breaks another Sabbath rule with his mercy. And yes, he just said the words like a spell that you can learn at Hogwarts and he fixed the guy's hand. That's some true power, Lord of the Sabbath indeed. And then the Pharisees were like, oh, Jesus, you're so right. We were so wrong. Please forgive us and teach us more. Nope. The Pharisees went out and plotted against him as to how they could assassinate him. They just skipped the, I want to speak to your manager step. So what do we do with this story? Jesus has introduced himself to us as the one who really defines what rules are. And the Pharisees are stuck in the limited world that they've created for themselves. Well, this story brings up two questions, maybe, maybe more for you, but at least two for me. The first is, am I acting like a Pharisee? And two, what exactly are the rules I need to follow then? So the first question, am I acting like a Pharisee? Gosh, I hope not. Jesus doesn't seem to like them. And while I don't think we have elaborate plans to assassinate anyone, I do think that we should all ask ourselves this question. When I practice my faith and I encounter someone else practicing it different, do I engage them in a posture of legalism like the Pharisees or a posture of love like Jesus? You see, I think every person that chooses to follow Jesus and chooses to be a part of a community where other people are, are doing that too, eventually start to pay attention to three things. What is said, what is sung, and what is seen. And we pay attention to them to create a safe little space where we can be comfy. If it's, it's how we like it, then we're content. But if it starts to feel unsafe, at best we complain about it for a bit, and at worst, we pick a fight or we leave. So let's talk about what is said. I'm mainly talking about virtual, virtue signaling here, where someone gets up here at a podium or a, a lectern and says some things about a virtue that you feel is really important. And you hear a pastor say what you value and it's really good. You know, like when I say something so profound and someone goes, mmm, right? Do, do you need those kind of moments? As you sit in chairs on a Sunday morning or in your home, are the words or the phrases you need to hear um, from the pulpit, uh, 
Do you need to hear them to feel safe in your faith? Do you need to hear a sermon from a particular theological base? Like, do you need to hear like the, the Jesus loves me, this I know sermon? Or do you need to hear the you need to serve your community and fight for justice sermon? Does the person, person preaching need to make a point to use inclusive language? Or do they need to make a point to not use it? Do you need the person up here to make statements for or against political issues? Do you feel the success of a sermon is based on appealing to familiar talking points like what is our nation coming to and Jesus wants a relationship with you? I'm not saying that any of those things are right or wrong to say. I'm just asking us to take a little inventory. When you come to church, do you come to have your current spiritual virtues validated or are you coming to be transformed? The Pharisees definitely didn't like what Jesus said about things. And instead of letting them transform themselves, they let his words lead them to the point where they wanted to kill him. And this isn't just in sermons too. When we're interacting with other people, if they don't say the same things about what we believe, do we write them out of our lives? Remember when COVID had all of us on team mask or team no mask, team vaccine or team no vaccine? Uh, I've, I've, I've had people ask me to remove leaders based on how they manage their home. I've had people tell me not to let other people into a certain group because they aren't Christian. I've had pastor friends that refuse to be friends and work with other pastor friends who aren't LGBTQ affirming. Let me tell you why I'm so hesitant to let someone's belief get in the way of them having room in my life. I was a counselor at a camp when I was in college. And I was in charge of the volunteers, a couple volunteers, and a group of third grade boys. And it came to my attention that one of our counselors was kind of on the fence on what he thought about the divinity of Jesus. He had spent a whole two weeks up at camp uh, himself as a camper going through all that stuff. And God was doing a lot of good stuff in his life. And, but now it was time for him to be a leader over some third graders. And the question was, do we allow him to do that even though he's not in line with our virtues. Uh, he wasn't going to speak. He wasn't going to teach. Um, he wasn't going to run any of the small group time. That was my responsibility. His job was to take care of the kids, make sure they were seen and they were loved, uh, make sure they didn't wander off into the woods and get eaten by a bear. And eventually me and uh, a group of other people decided that we should send him home because he had this different um, theological uh, idea, or at least he hadn't landed on the one that, that, we, that we agree with. And on the way home, he got in a car accident and he died. And I'll never forget that. A decision I made to remove someone from a situation went horribly wrong. The second thing that we pay attention to is what is sung. I kid you not, I will never be a worship leader in a church. It's way too stressful. You're always disappointing someone. And let me be clear, be clear, I have never known anyone remotely as successful as Brendan has been at providing such a broad experience that the oboist and the metalhead feel like they're connected to the music. But how would worship be different if we put off every expectation of the singing parts of what they should be and just see where the Spirit of God takes us, see how the Spirit of God moves us, see how the Spirit of God touches our hearts. The songs we choose have powerful and creative lyrics. The verses we read uplift us and challenge us. The prayers we pray make us pause and humble ourselves. And I know uh, praying isn't singing, but it, it didn't start with an S, and so it didn't fit into my handy little alliteration. So speaking of S, the last one, what is seen? 
Are we letting what we see on Sunday or at a service project or in a small group get in the way of our faith? Are we paying too much attention to what's on the stage, what's served, what's served at brunch, how someone is acting, how many typos you can catch in my weekly emails, how communion is served, how we do membership, how no one is volunteering for the ministries that you really believe in. If the rhythms and the traditions aren't feeding you, are you getting bitter and letting frustration out in unhealthy ways? Church culture changes. The church is made up of a lot of generations, and as those generations progress through life, things shift around here. We try our best to keep the main thing the main thing, but the peripheral things, those change for sure. For example, what once was maybe common to have the American flag on our stage is now uncommon, if not problematic. Where once we had a choir, we don't anymore. Each generation gets to help set the look and the feel of the worship space. Can I tell you what I'd love to do? In our worship center, I would love to take down the two TVs and put one TV in the middle. It just techno Technology would be just so much easier in that room. However, if I do that, I will be moving across, and that will be a big deal. Not to mention, we actually already have another cross in the room, but if I move the cross, it's not even the one Jesus died on. And it's also like an instrument of like execution, so it's not like the most beautiful thing to look at, but it is a reminder of Jesus' um, power over death and sin in our life. But if I moved it, just two pieces of wood, man, what kind of issues would that cause? All of these things that we make little battles over get in the way of our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Now, here's the important thing I want to say. I'm not saying that what is said and what is sung and what is seen doesn't matter. Obviously they do. But if we learn anything from the story that we read, this confrontation reveals the danger of legalism, where religious rules and regulations become more important than the heart of worship and compassion for one another. The Pharisees were so focused on the external observance of the Sabbath that they missed its true purpose. The Sabbath is a day to rest, but it's also the perfect day to do good, to show mercy, and to bring healing to those in need. It's a day when we should extend the compassion of Christ to others, just as he did. Okay, so I said this text raised two questions. The first was, am I being like a Pharisee? We just covered that. The second is, so what rules do I need to follow then? Because in this story, you can make the case that Jesus is redefining one of the most core rules. It's found in the Ten Commandments, after all. What about others? What, what about honoring your parents? What about adultery? What about murder? What about the traditions of baptism and communion? Do those not really matter anymore? And what about other hot issue uh, stances like gay marriage or gender identity or abortion? Here's what I think we do. We look at how the Pharisees handled things in the story, and we look at how Jesus handled things in the story, and we let those guide us. The Pharisees let their faith feel threatened by what Jesus was doing. So may, Jesus, so may what Jesus said and did never threaten us, but encourage us and guide us. And Jesus? Jesus didn't ever teach that the Sabbath rule was obsolete. He just reminded people what it was there for. And in doing so, I think he challenges us to prioritize the person over the principle. Jesus doesn't need our help with the rules. He asks for our help in loving the person next to us. So when you have a choice between being legalistic in your interaction with someone or loving them, prioritize love and go from there. I think it's okay to say that we might still end up in different opinions and different principles, but there will still be love for each other and we won't be planning each other's assassinations. I might still think that my kid's drawing is ugly, but oh, how I love them for it. So I have three questions for you. 
What are your expectations when you come to church? Number two, when has legalism gotten in the way of your faith or someone else's faith? And number three, what is one thing you're willing to try to let go of to love someone this week? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.